we have finished, oh, I don't know, 15, 16, 17 weeks, I don't remember, on the doctrine of the Word of God or the Bible, where the Bible came from, how we got the books that we got in the Bible, how we know it's true, and we talked about necessity, sufficiency, clarity of Scripture, and we came to an end. Sometime in the future, I might put in two or three weeks on Bible translation and the differences in Bible translations, um, but I don't know, did I do that at one time before? I did that, so probably I won't do that anymore. Um, and, um, and so now we go on to unit two of this book, Systematic Theology, and uh, it's a whole unit on the doctrine of God. How do we know that God exists? Can we really know God personally? And then what are the characteristics or attributes of God? What is he like? And how can we know what he is like? And then uh, after a few weeks, we'll get to this doctrine of the Trinity, which is a major, major doctrine in the Christian faith, and look at the doctrine of the Trinity and the various mistakes that people have made about it in the past. But right now, we're starting with this uh, first question, um, how do we know that God exists? And anybody need a handout? There's an outline. Everybody have one? Okay. Oh, looks like way in the back for me. And it looks like there are some back there. Okay, keep holding your hand up if you still need one. Anybody, Garth? Okay. Well, how do we know that God exists? Two answers. Number one, all people have an inner sense of God. And number two, we believe evidence. And uh, what is the evidence? Well, there's evidence in Scripture, and there's evidence in nature. So that's the total of what I want to look at on this chapter. First, uh, humanity's inner sense of God. All people have a deep inner sense that God exists. And they are his creature, they, they are his creatures, and he is their creator. Although they knew God, Romans 1.21 says that many people, um, although they knew God, uh, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, but they knew him. And I, I remember back in a philosophy class in college where uh, my uh, philosophy professor said, no, I don't have any sense of God. And I said, well, I think you do. I think everybody has an inner sense of God. And he said, well, somehow it's eluded me or something like that. Um, and, um, and yet I, I think that what happens is people kind of suppress that from time to time but um, still the Bible says that it is there, although the Bible is pretty honest about the fact that some people reject this um, kind of inner sense of God that they have. Sinful unbelievers actively or willfully suppress or reject some truth about God's existence that they knew um, because, again, in Romans 1, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. But then, a few verses later, it says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So um, so what happens is people start out and they have a sense that there is a God, and then they kind of make up their own ideas of who he is, and they start worshiping the creature. And, of course, the history of the human race is the history of all sorts of religions that people make up and they 
make, um, of course, in ancient culture surrounding Israel, they would make these figures and bow down to them and worship them, whether Baal or the uh, Asherah, these deities, or Dagon, and all these different uh, gods that these people had. And when Paul was writing then in the first century, there were all these Greek temples to different gods. And if you study Greek mythology about Zeus and all the other Greek gods or Latin gods, there were all these different gods that people could worship, and, and Jupiter and um, Aphrodite and uh, many others. So people begin to make pictures of these gods and bow down and worship them. Paul says they exchange the truth about God for a lie. Um, and so, uh, again, the Bible recognizes that sin leads people to think irrationally and to deny God's existence and to say there is no God. And so um, the fool, the Bible recognizes there are atheists, uh, the, but it, the, it says the fool says in his heart there is no God. This is someone who um, really is making a wrong uh, conclusion or reasoning wrongly from an inner sense and from the evidence we'll talk about in nature. But people do that. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. And then again, Psalm 51, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Again, it re repeats the same idea. Um, or Psalm 10, the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord in the pride of his face. The wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. And so there's a connection between uh, the Bible's portrayal of people who are thinking wrongly and who are living in the moral rebellion against God. And of course, they don't want there to be a God because they don't want to be accountable to him. And so what's happening is uh, both, both people are foolish or people who are wicked are saying, there is no God, there is no God. And of course, if, uh, if you start living a life of immorality, you don't want to have accountability, do you? And you, you are tending then to believe that there isn't any God who's going to hold you accountable. And that's the process of, uh, of uh, that's the process of what happens with the human race. But I'll go back to this: all people still have a deeper, deep inner sense that God exists. And what happens is that inner sense often comes out at time of crisis. Maybe you've found that uh, you've had friends or neighbors or relatives that don't really bother much about God until there's a serious illness or a tragedy, or uh, maybe even a death in the family, or, or someone is called in a military service, and all of a sudden they feel, wait a minute, we need help from help greater than we can have on our own, and they, they call out to God for help. And when I talk about this, this inner sense of God, the, the, the story that comes to mind is a story of when I was still in college, um, before Margaret and I were married, and I was going to college in Boston and living in Wisconsin, came home for Christmas, and then we're driving back from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where I grew up. And, um, and we went, we, uh, there were some students from the Eau Claire area and then picked up somebody in Milwaukee and somebody in, the, in Ohio. And so we were driving back in my car, I think there were five of us, and uh, two or three of us were uh, Christian believers, 
And then there was uh, one woman in the car um, named Pam, and she, um, she was kind of arguing back and forth with us through the night, saying she was at least agnostic. She didn't really have any sense that there was a God. She didn't know how anybody could know that God existed. And she was a very, very bright college student. And we kind of argued on into the night a little bit, not really angrily, but just kind of in a friendly conversation. And then everybody got sleepy and people were dozing off, but we were driving right through the night. And so my friend Bob, who was driving, um, somehow he had forgotten or never learned that uh, bridges freeze, because uh, freeze, the water from a river kind of mist comes up and you get these icy patches on bridges. So we're coming across the New York State Thruway. And um, just like at the break of dawn, maybe 6 AM or so in the middle of winter, I don't know, just getting a little bit light, he came across a bridge and hit a patch of ice at 70 miles an hour, and the car started twirling around. Of course, we all woke up. And as the car was spinning, before we kind of landed safely in a huge snowbank and there was not much damage, it spun all around. But as the car was spinning, Pam was calling out very loudly, Jesus, help us. Lord Jesus, please help us. <laughs> well, well, we landed in the snowbank, and of course, we all looked at her, the agnostic, and she not only knew God existed, but she knew you could pray to Jesus. And <laughs> her arguments didn't have as much weight anymore. But what, what happens is, in a time of crisis, often what's deep in your heart, deep down there, comes out. And um, I, don't know, I don't know whatever happened to uh, Rogers Albritton, the chairman of the philosophy department at Harvard, where I was in this little seminar class and arguing back and forth with him. I don't know if there was ever a case where in a time of crisis, uh, he had a similar experience of that knowledge of God came out, um, but uh, at least I talked with him with the idea that, yeah, you know, I think there is a knowledge of God in your heart. And remember, I told you a few months ago when I was in November flying back from uh, Philadelphia, where I was ended up sitting next to an atheist religion professor at a uh, college in California. And uh, she really uh, insisted that she was an atheist. And uh, I kept on saying, you shouldn't be an atheist, especially if you're a religion professor. But, um, uh, and so I was kind of giving reasons back and forth. And it was an interesting conversation, I think, for both of us. Throughout the history of the world, though, people who don't think there is any God are in a tiny, tiny minority. What is it? The polls say 94, 97% of people in the United States believe there is a God. And um, uh, so throughout many cultures and many societies through the world, there is an inner sense that people have, just an instinctive sense, that there is a God. And that's what leads people to have all these religions around the world. You don't find many people who don't have any religion at all. And even when, say, totalitarian regimes like communism uh, try to stamp out religion, as in former Soviet Union or in China, it, it, you, you just can't do that have their own religions or Christianity spreads and there is an instinctive sense that people have of God. So that's number one. We have an inner sense of God. In the life of a Christian, that inner awareness, that inner sense of God's existence becomes stronger and more distinct. And so the Bible can talk about that. It says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, 
but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So it's not only that Christians have a sense that God exists, it's also that we have a sense that God is someone whom we can relate to as father, and we are sons and daughters. We, we uh, relate to him as, as children. And, um, of course, that's through uh, coming to him through Jesus Christ and, and becoming adopted into his family. You, you receive the spirit of adoption. Also, something happened to you. You became a member of God's family, and you can have this very positive relation to God as your father. Uh, Ephesians 3.17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be rooted, at, you being rooted and grounded in love. So, um, so Paul's saying something else is true, that uh, Jesus, who in his human body went back to heaven after he died and was resurrected from the dead, appeared to his disciples for 40 days, and then uh, and then he um, went back to heaven, but uh, in the spiritual realm, he's still present and can come and live in our hearts. So that is in the innermost inward, you know, spiritual, emotional, decision-making area of our lives. There's a presence of Jesus that we know, and we can know him personally. So this is a stronger sense of the existence of God. saying that in a book she's reading by John Eldridge, she's saying, he's saying, look, look at a lot of modern movies. There is a sense of conflict between good and evil, and there's an awareness of good and evil, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. And uh, people don't know what they're searching for. Uh, but there's a sense that there's an ultimate reality, and, uh, and, that, um, and that there is a God of some, some kind, maybe not well-defined. Okay, and then... Um, Jesus, again, here in John 14, 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So, very interesting. We're going to get to the doctrine of the Trinity later, that God is three persons and one God. But here, in these verses, you have the Holy Spirit coming and living with us. Here, Jesus Christ, God the Son, dwelling in our hearts, living in us through faith, and... My Father will love him, and we, that is the Father and the Son, Jesus and the Father, will come to him and make our home with him. So what the Bible is saying is that once we become believers in Jesus Christ, trust his work of dying for our sins to gain forgiveness for us, once that happens, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three members of the Trinity, come to live within us individually that's the remarkable thing and so that we can have this sense of being able to talk to God or talk to Jesus or the Holy Spirit and have a personal relationship and when that happens of course then we have a much stronger awareness inner sense of the existence of God does God exist well yes I know I know I talk to him every day I mean that's the kind of sense that we have uh, that's much stronger than just a vague awareness uh, that there is a God. 
And First um, Peter can go beyond that and talk about actually an interpersonal relationship such that we love Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, nobody here in this room has seen Jesus, though you haven't seen him, and Peter's writing to people, oh, First Peter, the book starts out, uh, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, uh, four Roman provinces that he describes with five names throughout Asia Minor, many of whom had not seen Jesus Christ, probably most all of them had not seen, been, unless they'd lived in, around Jerusalem uh, while Jesus was alive, but most of them had not. Says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That is, you haven't seen him, but he's living within you. There's a personal relationship with him such that you love him. Remarkable, that very strong human uh, deep-seated attitude and mindset and emotion of love. You can say that is true. Peter can say that is true of all believers, basically, because he's writing to hundreds of churches in Asia Minor. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Well, does he exist? Well so much that I have a relationship with him and I love him. And I suppose that you can say that. At least many of you, I don't know all of your backgrounds, but I suppose you can say that, that yes, I pray to Jesus. I have a, an awareness that he is with me, that he hears me when I pray. And that's a wonderful relationship. In fact, isn't it the most important thing in your whole life? I think if we just settle our minds down for a minute, we would say, you know, it is. It's the most important thing in my whole life is my relationship with Jesus, who is God, um, with God the Father, and with the Holy Spirit as well. Okay, so that there's a deep inner sense of God's existence that basically all people have. But in a believer in Jesus Christ, it becomes more explicit and more relational and more personal and, um, and more real and more genuine. Okay, so that's an inner awareness of God. How do we know that God exists? Well, we know him as a person, though we do not see him. Is it possible to relate to a person that you've never seen? I mean, even taking an analogy from human experience, is it possible to relate to a human being whom you've never seen? What would be an example? Hmm? A pen pal, okay, letters back and forth. And Laverne? I see, well, we kind of see Jesus related to uh, through other people. Yeah, I guess there's a sense like that. All right, anything else? Yeah, Carol? Okay. Okay, so there may be missionaries overseas that you hear from them, you maybe get letters from them or emails. And uh, we got email from somebody in Kazakhstan and somebody in Turkey just within the last couple of weeks. Uh, but, but then maybe you've never even met them and you can pray for them and, uh, and you can write back. And so it is possible to have a kind of relationship with people that you've never seen anyway. It's a little bit different because you're writing, but it's not all that different because God's given us his Bible, which is some words to us, a lot of words, and we hear him speaking. And then we speak to him. So there is something of that. It's a little different, I understand. But it's real. How about talking on the telephone? 
you do talk to people on telephone that you don't see at least at the moment, but you know they're present. Now, it's not exactly the same because you're hearing it with your ears, but it's similar. Yeah, what's your name? Rosemary. Well, that's not too crazy at all, Rosemary. <laughs> um, Rosemary said, this is kind of crazy. I, I don't see my soul or spirit, but it, but it is there. And I think that's true. Uh, so um, there is an unseen part to reality. <clears throat> and, and when we have a sense that we have a soul or a spirit, even when we have a sense that when we die, we're going to live on, even though our body isn't living. Um, that's kind of another testimony of the fact that in the unseen world, in the spiritual realm, we do have a connection or an existence. So, okay, good. So uh, in the Christian, this sense of awareness of God's existence, it grows stronger. And I, I honestly think that's true. I honestly think it does. But there's a second way we know God exists. <clears throat> and that is, we believe the evidence in Scripture and in nature. <clears throat> Two kinds of evidence here. One is in the Bible. <clears throat> the Bible everywhere assumes that God exists. First sentence of the Bible, in the beginning, what? In the beginning, God. It just starts out, in the beginning, God. And the more I've looked at that verse, I think that in the beginning means in the beginning. It means in the beginning, in the real beginning, when everything began, when, when the universe began, when it was created. In the beginning, God was already there, and then he created it. So it, it just starts out from page one, assuming that God exists. Hands down, no question about it, this is the most influential book in the history of the world. Okay? Best-selling book in the history of the world, always, every year. And most influential book in the history of the world. What does it start out? It says, God. People generation after generation say, wow, this book is different from any other book. I, I hear the voice of my creator speaking to me in here as I begin to read it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then, in addition to the fact there's evidence in Scripture, and this is proven again and again to be the most reliable book that ever has existed, and it just assumes that God exists. That's good evidence not to be dismissed. But then also, if we look at the world around us, there's evidence in nature that God exists. In fact, every created thing gives evidence of God's existence. Uh, Paul says this in Romans 1, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul is saying, just look at the world around you, and everything bears some witness of God's power, uh, God's eternal power and divine nature. And uh, uh, Acts 14, 17. Here, uh, Paul is uh, not speaking to a Jewish audience. He's speaking to an audience of, of uh, mostly Greek uh, people. Greek-speaking people in, uh, in his first missionary journey in Asia Minor again, it said he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good, 
by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. What Paul is saying to these people in these Greek cities is, when you go to the grocery store and look at the fruit and vegetables, that should tell you there's a good God. Because you're able to have all these good things. And it's a witness from God. The rain, the fruitful season, the rain we need here actually. Wasn't it 120 days since we've had rain in Arizona? 130? But how does everything keep growing? I don't know, because God made it function so it's able to grow and it's dry. And we've got irrigation and things. Well, anyway, rain and fruitful season, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Paul is saying, when you see the rain and the crops growing and you're able to eat food, this, again, is just a witness from God that he made the world to be good and he made it to care for you. And so those banana, that banana and those grapes that I had this morning that Margaret put on my plate, and they tasted good, that should be saying to me, hey, there's a good God who made a world that you can live in. And it's a testimony of the fact that he's designed it, so it works for you, and it works for you in a very good way. And uh, so grocery stores are witness to God's existence. God's existence. The, when you go into the vegetable and fruit area, the produce area, you should look at that and say, wow, what a good God. Look at all these colors, look at all these flavors, look at all these varieties. It's good witness of God's existence. John? John is saying he has a magazine called Country Magazines for people who live on farms. Almost everybody in there seems to believe in God because of what they see in nature on a daily basis. Yeah. 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 And we, uh, we took this Jeep tour a couple months ago out in the desert, and the tour guide was just talking about how all these desert plants are designed to be useful for human beings and to be able to survive and they help the animals interrelate and so that's a complex universe and it all works. Where did it come from? There's evidence in, um, in the natural world. Um, and uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. That is, you look out at the stars and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Here, I think David is saying, just go out and look at the stars tonight. I don't, Every time I do that, there's this sense of awe. I just, I just stand out and behind our house just for a minute or two. I look up at those stars, and the more I read about how far away they are, and, and you know, you can see 5,000 of them with your naked eye. 5,000, that's how many you can see. But there are like 100 million stars in the Milky Way galaxy. You can only see 5,000 of them, but there are a lot more. And we're just one galaxy, and there are like 200, am I got the numbers right? There's 200 million galaxies, something like that, and they keep finding them. Amazing. Where did all that come from? There's a sense that we have, there must be a great, powerful God that made all this. And it's, and it's beautiful. So there's evidence in, in, uh, in nature that... Um, that uh, gives evidence of God's existence. And then man, 
man as male and female, created in the image of God, most abundantly bears witness to the existence of God. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This means that we're like God, and we represent God on the earth. He's made us more like him than any other creature. And so the amazing complexity of our bodies and our minds uh, didn't just happen by accident, um, but they uh, but they give evidence of God's existence. And I told you, but I'm going to tell the story again because it was so fun, that when uh, we were landing, when I'd been talking to this atheist religion professor, and uh, when we were landing in Dallas, uh, I got a little um, text message on my phone telling me the gate and the time for the connecting flight that went to Phoenix. And uh, and I just and you know kind of and I just showed it to her because it's kind of fun that I you know had figured out how to do this on the website and everything. And she said, "How'd you do that?" And I said, "Well, I just went on the." Sorry, American Airlines website. <laughs> I did fly Southwest recently, though. Uh, and Sarah, America West recently as well. We have different employees of different airlines here. Okay, but I went on the American Airlines website and set it up, and they automatically send you this text message. And, uh, and she said, wow, that's really amazing. And then I just said to her, yeah, oh, you know, this cell phone, nobody made this. This just happened. And she laughed, and she, I mean, she got the point of it. Um, but this isn't, this isn't one, one thousandth as complex as the human body. Um, and, it, you know, if you, if you just, if you just take a, a ballpoint pen and put a dot on your hand, uh, in the space of that dot, that, that size of, a, of an area in your body contains 10,000 living cells. And every cell is like a little city with all sorts of little manufacturing processes inside it, bringing molecules in, changing them, sending them out, active 24 hours a day, all making different kinds of things. Some make eyelashes, some make hair more or less effectively. <laughs> some you know, make your eyes keep working. Some cells make your brain keep working, and some make bones and skin. It's just amazing, and they're all different, all different purposes. And every single cell in your body is different from every single cell in my body because our DNA is different, and our DNA is this incredibly complex, vast library of information that tells who we are. 10,000 of them in that little... My goodness... If you think that there had to be a brain that designed this cell phone and years of research and intelligence, how do you think this came about? It's an incredible complexity. That it just it so what we're saying is that in a way every blade of grass out there on the lawn, every leaf on every tree is just crying out 24 hours a day, God made me, God made me, God made me, God made me, God made me. The complexity and the interrelatedness of it and how it all works together, that didn't just happen. No amount of billions of years and matter plus time plus chance could ever have had that happen. Um, it's far too complex. So, so, 
man created in the, in the image of God um, bears abundant witness to the existence of God. And then, as I've been saying here, the beauty of a snowflake, I think they're all different, aren't they? Snowflakes? They're amazing. Or are they all different, every single one of them? Uh, Can you imagine that? And we've lived in Minnesota and Wisconsin a long time. There are a lot of snowflakes, let me tell you. Uh, The skill of a honeybee, the refreshing taste of cold water, the incredible abilities of the human hand, all these and thousands of other aspects of creation simply could not have come into existence apart from an all-powerful and all-wise creator. And so what we're saying is everything in Scripture and everything in nature proves clearly that God exists. When we believe, then, that there is a God, we are not just taking a blind step of hope, you know, leap of faith out into nothing, based on nothing. We're doing the most reasonable thing there is to do. We're believing an abundant amount of evidence, an overwhelming amount of reliable evidence of God's words and works. Now, um, that's that's uh, how we know that God exists. In a sense, everything in the universe gives testimony that God exists. And when you talk to philosophers, actually, the fact that anything exists at all is hard to explain apart from the idea of a creator. Okay. Questions on that? Comments? Okay, yeah, Ed. Good. I, I agree with you, Ed. We're talking about Jesus Christ in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And Ed is saying those protons and uh, neutrons and electrons that spin around and don't just fly out, but they, what's, what's that? That's the way God made them, and that and that it's actually saying that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is also man, but is also God, is holding all those things together. In him all things hold together or consist. And uh, keeping things existing in the way that they were created, that is absolutely remarkable. Yeah, yeah. Evidence of God's existence. Now, I'm just going to take a little moment here and talk about just a kind of traditional proofs for the existence of God that uh, have been constructed by philosophers. Um, and I, I, I just know a little bit about these. I don't know a whole lot about them, but I'm going to summarize them. One is the cosmological argument. This is where people say every known thing in the universe has a cause. Therefore, the universe itself must have a cause. And the cause of such a great universe can only be God. That's what I was saying with the cell phone. It, this didn't just happen. It was made. All right. And uh, so the way that that's constructed with regard to the cosmos of the universe, people call that the cosmological argument. Another one is the teleological argument. Greek word telos means end or goal. Since the universe appears to be designed with a purpose, there must be an intelligent or purposeful God who created it to function in this way. People say, well, look, you know, um, things, 
seem to keep on existing, and there's there just seems to be a purpose. Every plant has a purpose. Every animal relates. There's this heart, you, ecosystem that all works together, and it fits together. Human beings have a sense of purpose, and we work toward goals. Everything that you look at has a purpose. Well, then the universe itself must have a purpose. What's that? Well, it must be that God created it for a purpose. That's kind of the teleological argument. And then uh, there's this ontological argument, which is kind of an unusual argument. And uh, I spent a long time in this philosophy class, several weeks, kind of talking about this. And it fascinates philosophers more than most ordinary people. But it, it goes like this. It assumes the idea of God, or attempts to demonstrate the idea of God, defined as a being greater than which nothing can be imagined. So you start you say, well, look, um, uh, do we know, you know, is there a God? Well, let's say if there was a God, he would be a being greater than which nothing can be imagined. And, you know, existing is part of being great. It's greater to exist than not to exist. Well, if God is a being greater than which nothing can be imagined, I can't imagine anything greater than, than what this would be, and that has to include existence. And it seems like a trick when you first hear it. And then these really world-famous philosophers, like somebody named Alvin Plantinga, um, I, who was it Calvin, and I think he's at Notre Dame, but or Yale, some I don't know. But, but he, he kind of goes around and talks to philosophers and befuddles them with this. And the more they think about it, the more it's interesting. I'll just mention it. Um, if you're a philosopher or a philosophy major, you will find that interesting. And if you're not, we'll go on to number four. There's something to it, I think, but, um, but it isn't immediately persuasive to people as the others. The moral argument says we have a sense of right and wrong and the need for justice to be done. And this argues that there must be a God who is, is the source of right and wrong and who will someday mete out justice to all people. That's what Laverne said. You see this in movies, sense of good and evil, right and wrong. And there's a sense that, you know, there's got to be final reward and punishment. Something, there has to be something that makes all things right. There's a lot, there are a lot of people who do much good in the world and they don't get much credit for it. Well, will there be some benefit, some reward for them? There's a sense that we have that, yes, there will. There are a lot of people who do evil in the world, great evil, and then they don't receive much punishment for it. There's a sense, well, there must be something else coming. And I think that that inner sense of a moral right and wrong, and that there is a God who defines right and wrong, and that's where we get a sense of right and wrong in our conscience, that that also has weight. So there are those arguments. All these proofs, I think, are valid. That is, they correctly evaluate the evidence. There is a purpose in the creation. The, there is a cause for the creation. It is true uh, uh, that, there, that uh, God uh, has existence, which is greater than not existing. It is true that there's a moral sense that's based on God's moral right and wrong, moral standard. So I think they correctly evaluate the evidence and they reason to a correct conclusion. However, that, but if, if those are good, then they're, they're just kind of the evidence that we see as ordinary people that philosophers have just constructed in a very tightly reasoned way. And, and I say, well, all right, they're, they're good, but then why don't they persuade everybody? Well, they don't persuade everybody because as if you start out with the assumption that the material world is all there is and that's all you're going to ever accept as valid, once you start out with that kind of naturalistic assumption, then this won't compel belief from people who begin with false assumptions or reason incorrectly. And so the value of these proofs is mainly in overcoming some of the intellectual objections of unbelievers. Well, now, um, where does that leave us? 
Some people just they reject the evidence. I won't give in to the evidence. I won't accept that evidence. Well, ultimately, I think the Bible says only God himself can work in our hearts, work in our minds, overcome our sin, and enable us to be persuaded of his existence. Um, Paul talks about people who reject the knowledge of God and reject the testimony about how Jesus Christ is the Son of God and has come to make provision for our sin and enable us to know God. Paul says people reject that, and he says if that is true, in their case, the God of this world, which he means Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers uh, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And we, you might have a neighbor or a friend or a co-worker or someone in your family who say, look, look at all this, look at all this, look at all this evidence, look at all this testimony of changed lives, look at, you know, um, all these things we've been talking about. And the person says, well, I just don't see it. I just don't want to have anything to do with it. So Paul is saying there's a, there's a blindness that, that comes on unbelievers. And uh, he says, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. So it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It has been true through the history of the Christian church that it's ordinary people more than sort of really super smart intellectual people or really, I don't know, super powerful people, etc. It's more ordinary people that have come to believe in God. And Paul says not many wise, not many powerful, not many mighty were, were chosen, but God has chosen the foolish things in the world to confound the wise. So it's interesting that um, God did not know, the people did not know God through wisdom. That's not 100%, but it's more. And, and you know, we noticed when we lived in Chicago, the closer you got to Lake Michigan, the more expensive the houses were and the fewer churches there were. And I just, <laughs> you've lived in the Chicago area, John, you know, but, but you know it, you know it. And it's interesting, it was so hard to have a, a Bible-believing church over right on Lake Michigan. Why? Because I think people were just so self-sufficient. Anything goes wrong, they'd just pay for a solution. And um, yet, where, where is the church growing phenomenally? Uh, in third world countries, where people do not have all their self-sufficiency. Um, so that seems to be God's plan. And I think the practical application for us is um, if God has given us more self-sufficiency and independence and perhaps knowledge or wealth, then be thankful that, that God overcame that sense of pride, that sense of self-sufficiency that we would attend to and enabled us to know him. Um, and then be thankful for believers from more humble circumstances who oftentimes have great faith and, uh, and really honor God in many ways in their lives. So Paul wants their faith not to rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Um, okay, that's, that's the end of, let's see where I am. I'm at 9-11. So, Let's see here. I'm trying to decide whether to go on to both sides of this or not. Um, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, let's um, let's just try these these questions about the existence of God, and then and then next week we'll talk about can we know God? Uh, that'll be the back back side. But let's just try this. Uh, yeah, Gene. Ah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what about the intelligent design conflict and school systems trying to uh, say that, you know, it's just possible that there was a God who created the universe or that there was an intelligent designer, not even using the word God, um, and uh, that uh, all living things didn't come about by random mutation um, and time plus chance and natural selection. Why can't we allow that as a possibility in the public square? It's, well, it's because of our Supreme Court that has decreed a kind of an excessive separation of church and state. Um, and that's going to be an interesting struggle that's played out over the next 10, 15 years in our country, whether it, where, where you have for decades all children in public schools being taught that all living things are the result of just evolutionary process with no involvement by God. Just, you know, these are the way things evolve, and uh, that's as, as reasonable as a lightning bolt hitting um, an oil field and creating my cell phone. Um, uh, but in spite of that, some polls say something like 70% of the American people believe that God, not evolution, is the, result, is the cause of all living things. So people just don't accept it. And I, we had a friend who was a science teacher in uh, upper junior high or lower high school uh, level in England. And uh, he had, by curriculum, he had to show this evolutionary design film every year that uh, showed how frog, uh, fish came out of the sea and became frogs or something like that. And he said the uniform response of students was to laugh at it. Um, so uh, there's a sense that we have this can't be. Now, the intelligent design movement is just its making a very special form of the cosmological argument and saying this has to be designed by God. It's so complex that mathematically you just can't get the human eye or the wing of a bird or anything or a human cell, living cell, by random processes. I think their arguments are truthful. Whether, in fact, they'll be allowed to be taught in schools or not is a big, big conflict coming. Uh, but if it's true, why shouldn't we allow it to be an option? That's, I guess, my question. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. What happens is, what's your name? Eloise. Could people think, well, maybe there are many gods or different gods? Yeah. And of course, what happens is people look at the evidence in nature and they have all sorts of theories to explain it. And so, a uh, long time ago, in the 1500s, John Calvin, uh, in, um, in uh, Geneva, Switzerland, wrote, he said, the, the Bible, we need the Bible as the spectacles, or the glasses, by which we interpret the evidence in nature rightly. Otherwise, we go astray. All right, let's just ask this. When the seraphim around God's throne cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory, Isaiah 6, 3, do you think they are seeing the earth from a somewhat different perspective than ours. Yes, ah, good. Everybody's awake here this morning. Yes, they are. Um, uh, 
they are looking at the earth, and I think they're seeing what I was trying to hint at when I was saying every blade of grass, every leaf on every tree is crying out, God made me, God made me. So um, how can we begin to see the world more from this perspective? Well, I just, I want you, when you walk outside, to say, hey, look, all that's evidence of God's existence. And in fact, even inside, now I don't know if we have any living things in here other than the people. I don't see any plants or anything. Um, but uh, the evidence of architectural design is evidence of the incredible goodness of the human mind that God has given us to be able to design a building where the roof doesn't fall in and things like that. So in a way, whenever we look at anything, it's evidence of God's existence. There's a clarity to that. And so I, I want us to look more at the world that way. I guess that's one thing I'm, I'm saying. Number two, let me just ask you this. When is your inner sense of God's existence strongest or weakest? When is your inner sense of God's existence strongest? What would you say? When you're praying? Yeah, I think so, too. And I just spent some time in prayer this morning. I had a strong sense of God's existence and presence with me. When else is your time of God's existence strongest? Hmm? When you're in a crisis, yes. What else? Around other believers, yeah. Uh, and e.g.? Yeah, quiet times, reading the Bible, spending time in prayer, John. What's that? Watching your son be born. Yeah, with a, a miracle of, uh, of, uh, of new, new being. Uh, ben? Ah. Yeah, okay, when you gardened a lot in another state, and... Uh, um, when things grew so fast. Yeah. Oh, well, he said that when he lived where we are. Yep. In answered prayer, you have a sense of God's existence. Okay. Well, in all of those situations, are you more like what it'll be like in heaven or less? Oh, oh wait a minute. When is your when is your awareness of God's existence weakest? Hmm? Yeah. You want to try and do it yourself? What else, Ed? Yeah, get, you kind of get focused on just kind of, forget you forget about God, and you kind of just focus on your own project and things like that, or you kind of forget. Or how about just kind of being bombarded by unbelieving signals in the world, in the culture, in the media, um, or maybe just kind of a lot of time that you spend around, around people that kind of assume that God doesn't exist. That could happen. So now which is more like the situation you'll have in heaven? when you're closest to God. And so where is your judgment more reliable? I, I, I think that your judgment is more reliable when you're closest to the kind of situation you have in heaven, when you have this sense of God's existence, when it's stronger. And that's a kind of confirming evidence for us. Talked about complexity of design. I'll go on. Um, do most people today believe in the existence of God? Yes, they do. Has this been true throughout history? Yes. Why have they not worshipped him rightly? Well, we talked about that, that people make up their own religion instead of hearing the words of God that come through the Bible. Uh, that is it on those things. Now, I'm just, you know, I, I don't do this 
all the time, but we've been talking about God's existence and knowing him personally. And I know some of you here, but I don't know everybody, and I don't know all of your backgrounds. And it might be that some of you are thinking, I'm not sure I know what that is. I hear people talking about praying and knowing God exists. I hear people talking about having a relationship with God, but I don't know that that exists. And I, I just... I just want to remind you, and this is a reminder that you might use in talking to other people too, but the message of the Bible is a very simple one in a way, and that is that uh, what keeps us from knowing God is a moral condition. It's that we've, we haven't even lived up to our own conscience, and we have this sense that we're not as good as we would like to be. And that there is a God, but we don't deserve to relate to him. There's something, there's a barrier, and the Bible calls that sin. And the solution for that is that there had to be a consequence, a penalty for sin, and that Jesus paid that as our representative, paid that for us, and that ultimately we come to know God through trusting in Jesus. Um, and so the knowledge of God's existence isn't going to become really clear to us until we've trusted in Jesus and as one whom we don't see, but he speaks to us here in his word and we find out that he's present with us and we can trust in him, put our trust in him. And I, there's anybody who is kind of wondering about that, I or Bob uh, uh, or a number of other people would be happy to talk to you about that afterward. Or I think there is a booth out in the courtyard called Tell Me More, isn't there? Uh, or... Right after this class, there's class 100, which goes into more about how do you come to know God personally through Christ. Well, Trent, can we go to um, the last slide of that chapter, which we'll go to next week? Look at that. Huh? You know, when you get somebody who works for Microsoft, no computer problems ever. It just comes up. Okay, uh, that was the last slide, and I'll go back to this. Let's sing this uh, kind of in closing. This is um, this is a hymn. It's an old hymn from the 1860s, but it's kind of a testimony of somebody saying, you know what, Jesus, I know you enough that I can say I love you, and I know you're mine. So uh, let's stand up and sing this, and then and then we'll be done.